This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey, Matt Robeson, Beyond Politics. Coming up, an emergency pod to discuss the Supreme Court's decision to consider Donald Trump's claim of absolute immunity for everything, everywhere that he might have ever done. And I'll tell you in a minute why I think this is the biggest deal of the presidential election so far which is why we're adding this pod this week to our usual Monday, Wednesday, Friday release schedule, jumping out ahead of our usual Friday roundtable show. And if you're wondering, hey, wait, where's the roundtable? We're still taping it later today. We'll have that for you on Friday. And if you're thinking to yourself, wait, didn't Matt just explain that he didn't do a Wednesday show this week because he had laryngitis? Yes, that's how important this is. So if I sound a little weird, it's because I decided I am willing to use up the last shreds of my voice to cover this topic. And I really wanted to get into it with our guest, Andy Kroll. Let's bring him in. Andy, you may recognize an outstanding investigative reporter with ProPublica. We've had him on several times before. Uh, welcome back. Good to be back. And thank you for using the last of your vocal capabilities for this critical this subject. A, this is it. Hey, this is it. people may be tenting their fingers and saying, wait, Matt's voice hurts. He might talk less. That'll be great. Right, so look, <laughs> the reason I wanted to do this with you is that there's going to be a ton of legal analysis out there. We'll get into some of that, and who knows? Maybe I'll call up Barb McQuaid and ask her to come back and really take us through the legal ins and outs. But I wanted to look at this story through a slightly different lens, which is your wheelhouse, your background. Before you dove into that massive Leonard Leo expose that you did for ProPublica, which was amazing and which we cover here, you, you mostly cover voting in elections and democracy issues. You were the Washington bureau chief for Rolling Stone. You've been at Mother Jones. Like you've real, and you, your reporting has mostly been on like corruption and voting issues and subversion. And that's really the big deal. Okay, that, that's where I want to go with this. But let's just quickly set the table for anyone who's waking up and still catching up to the news. Could you just quickly help us walk through what happened here? What did the Supreme Court decide to do and why is it such a surprise? Yeah, so the quick and dirty is the Supreme Court announced that it is going to accept and hear fully air out the question of absolute immunity that President Trump, former President Trump, has claimed that he has and is shielded by in the election subversion case that special counsel Jack Smith has brought. And listeners will probably remember it, that Jack Smith is overseeing two cases. There is the case out of Mar-a-Lago with the allegedly unlawful retention of classified documents. This is the banker's box in the Mar-a-Lago bathroom case that Smith is prosecuting and Judge Eileen Cannon, a sort of neophyte Trump appointee, is overseeing. So there's that case. But then in Washington, there is this hugely consequential case about whether Donald Trump subverted the 2020 election and should face criminal charges for doing so. And Jack Smith is leading that case. And if you look at the facts of that case, it is one of, if not the most consequential, most important cases in this country's history. And now the Supreme Court is agreeing to hear 
Donald Trump's and Jack Smith's back and forth battle about whether Trump is immune from any charges, potential charges stemming from January 6th. This is shaping up to be we're one of the most consequential Supreme Court cases in our history. Can a president subvert his own election, subvert democracy, as Jack Smith alleges, and for which the evidence is quite abundant? And can he then say, I have absolute immunity, almost like a monarch? I cannot be criminally charged. That's what's at stake here. And that's what the Supreme Court is now saying that it's going to take up and decide. And it really seemed like Boy, this is a cinch. This seemed like a crazy claim. So this went through the appeals court level. The judges on the appeals court basically said, wait, hold on a second. They literally questioned Trump's lawyer and they said, wait, so under your theory of our Constitution, Donald Trump as president could have ordered SEAL Team 6 to assassinate one of his rivals, which he was trying to do with his whole, I need you to do me a favor, though, to Zelensky, like politically assassinate Joe Biden. He could literally have said, SEAL Team 6, go murder Joe Biden, and he'd be immune. He he cannot be prosecuted for that either while he's president or after because you could do anything, absolutely anything. And they almost literally laughed it out of court. Yeah. They wrote this unsigned opinion to show that this was a unanimous, they mm-hmm. all 100% agree, including the Republican appointee of that three-judge panel, that this was crazy, that this was against the entire idea of our country, that this was just a do not even bring this crap in here type claim. And after that, I read a lot of legal analysis that said, the Supreme Court is going to do away with this nonsense in a heartbeat. Andy, what the hell? Like, why? I, this seemed like a major surprise. What's going on here? What, did this take you by surprise? No, it didn't take me by surprise. And I'll explain why. First, a, a couple of theories about why the court is taking this up. And honestly, why there was this delay between the appeals court's ruling and the Supreme Court deciding to grant certain and to, and to, to take this up at their level Obviously, there is some behind-the-scenes negotiations, machinations, disputes, debates inside the court among the nine justices about what to do on this question. Because if there was unanimity, if there was enough agreement, maybe five, six, even seven justices on this, they would have moved a lot faster. The court can move fast when it wants to. It, even on weighty subjects, and sometimes especially on weighty subjects like this one. So clearly there is dissent, and it's big enough, and it's among enough justices that they took a little more time than a lot of us expected and then decided to accept this case. Remember, they're also still waiting and deliberating and deciding what they're going to do on the Trump versus Anderson case. And this is the case where the 14th Amendment case, exactly trying to throw him off the ballot, that is still in the works and could get a decision on that any day now. Maybe there was some kind of attempt at a grand bargain among the justices, either to resolve both cases, because obviously these are two cases with potentially huge ramifications for this year's presidential election, not to mention our democracy writ large, our country writ large. But clearly that grand bargain did not happen. And I think the justices believe that 
they have some role to play here, that they have something to say, and that they really do not care or do not believe it is their responsibility to think about the calendar here. And we'll, we can get to that. But this decision by the court to take this case to schedule oral arguments in, in late April and potentially issue a decision by June could potentially derail this entire case. And that clearly is not a decision of theirs. And I, that doesn't surprise me thinking about Justice Thomas or Alito or Gorsuch, Coney Barrett, maybe. Yeah, I've always seen as more of a political creature, a creature of Washington. But clearly, there are enough justices who do not think that any of these things matter, that they are going to take their time and that they want to have a say on this. Is this legally motivated or politically motivated? I, I, and the reason I ask you this question is that you have marinated in the mind of the right wing legal miasma more than anyone. You did write the definitive piece on Leonard Leo. Leonard Leo, to remind our listeners, is the figurehead, the, the, more than a figurehead, he is the figure behind, the driving force behind the right wing takeover of the courts. The entire idea, the architect of the Federalist Society, and the entire idea of what a right-wing judiciary would look like. If the right-wing in America had an id that came to life as a real boy, it would be Leonard Leo. And so you have done that deep dive, and I'm, I'm a little befuddled about what might be going on in their minds. We had Kim Whaley, the legal scholar, on this show a few weeks ago, and she talked about the fact that judges frequently decide, here's what I want to do. And then they say to their law clerks, all right, Find me a legal rationale. And so I see a decision like this, and I hear you talk about, well, maybe there's a quid pro quo. Maybe there's negotiations. Maybe it's, we'll do this thing on the 14th Amendment, and we'll do this thing over here on immunity. And it, it just, it, it reeks to me of, there is a group of justices that have decided, here's the outcome we want. And to me, that feels much more political than legal. What do you think? I think you have to step back for a second and think about the six-vote conservative majority on this court. Obviously, not the first conservative majority or super majority of conservatives on the court, but really one of the first times, if not the first time in our history, where that conservative supermajority is a product of a political and legal project overseen by Leonard Leo and his acolytes and very much fueled by the Federalist Society, this sort of breeding ground pipeline for judges and justices and lawyers on the right. The, the Lewis Powells of the past, these were a more heterodox, conservative right. type of Supreme Court justice. The, you may have had a Rehnquist and a Powell and a Scalia. They may be called conservatives, but they were very different thinkers. They were very different strategists, operators behind the scenes. But what you have today is very much a Federalist Society created supermajority. Every single one of those six justices, even John Roberts, even though he likes to back away from it for his own reasons, was either shaped by, helped by, steeped in the thinking and the intellectual atmosphere of the Federalist Society. And I think that has consequences at the court. I think it has consequences in terms of a an appetite to take cases that pick apart 
in some cases outright dismantle what they call the administrative state and what uh, a lot of others call most of the executive branch of the federal government. And you are seeing that play out right now. But I think you also have justices like Thomas and Alito and to a certain degree, Gorsuch as well, who have expressed real doubts about the 2020 election litigation, who have written in their opinions, shown really an appetite to want to litigate more of these cases, to want to see more of these cases, Thomas and Alito especially. And you just pick up from reading their dissents, from reading their opinions, sometimes even just their public remarks, a real bitterness and just a real outright skepticism of the efforts to say that 2020 was election subversion or that there were crimes committed or that all of these sort of democracy-threatening cases are as serious as Jack Smith and so many others are treating them as such. So again, I'm not surprised that they want to deal in this case, that they want to accept this case. And I do think that you have to understand who these men and women are and what, a, what the system that they're a product of, the times that they've come out of. And honestly, also, I think as they've been on the bench, just sent a, a real sort of hardening of their conservative beliefs and of their skepticism of something like this Jack Smith election subversion case. You see it with Alito and the things that he's writing in his dissents. You've seen it with Thomas for a long time. And obviously, Thomas showed some appetite to hear some of those 2020 voting cases brought by the conservative side. It sets us up for a very interesting set of oral arguments in April. And again, just completely throws this year's legal political calendar into flux. I said at the top of the show that I had a case to make for why this is the biggest deal of the presidential election. And maybe the biggest deal in decades. This could be the most consequential decision that the Supreme Court ever makes, depending on how this all plays out. I want to make that case, but I want to hit you with just one more kind of about the internal thinking on the court. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It struck me that we could have a situation here. It only takes four justices to grant cert, to to take a case like this five to issue a stay. And that's what's happened here. That's the real upshot. This is what leads us into the case for why this is so significant is that not only did the case, not only the Supreme Court say, yeah, we're going to hear this. They also said, and you've got to hit pause on Mm -hmm. everything having to do with the election subversion case while we're waiting. And it looks like this is on the calendar for April. And then the, the judge overseeing the election subversion case, Tanya Chutkin has basically said, look, while we're in a delay, this doesn't make any sense to me. While we're in a delay, we have to give back the Trump team an equal day for every day of delay to prepare for the ultimate case. This seems crazy to me because if you're in a delay, it's like, what the hell else are you doing? Prepare for the case, Trump team, but whatever. The point is this shifts the potential start of the election subversion case back into 
September or October. Just one point on that kind of four vote or five vote margin, this could well be a case where John Roberts understands the political import here. He understands the historic legacy here and he cares, but he's powerless to stop the four justices or five justices mm -hmm. who want to grant cert and slow down. And it really, I, maybe you're right. Maybe we shouldn't be surprised after Dobbs because you see in Alito and in the, that majority, a willingness to say, we really don't care anymore. We're going to, we're going to finish this right-wing kind of project that we started over the last few decades. We're going to find a way to do and deliver on all the things that we've said we were going to do. We don't really care about the legal niceties here. We don't really care about the constitutional reasoning. We're just going to get the result we want. And this could easily be a case of it's our very first MAGA court and we're just seeing them live it out. Maybe you're right. Maybe I'm maybe you should be surprised that I'm surprised. It, it Look, on the face of it, the court taking the case tells us that they feel there is something unresolved. They feel there are legal matters that the highest court in the land needs to weigh in. It needs to air out in briefs and then in oral arguments and then needs to weigh in on to clarify some kind of some kind of uncertainty or to resolve some kind of tension in the law. And that on the subject of this case is jarring. I'm not going to begrudge you for being surprised. Look, we, this is a country founded on the premise of we don't want to be ruled by kings. We don't want to be ruled by unaccountable monarchs who are above the law. And that is what this absolute immunity argument could be boiled down to is that the president enjoys absolute immunity for anything that he or she may do while in office. And the potential consequences of that are vast. So you're not wrong to be surprised. But again, this Supreme Court is emboldened. It does not, this majority does not shy away from injecting itself into what might seem settled law or might seem like an obvious issue on which to say, rightly decided, D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, we don't need to weigh in. This court sees itself as a sort of active force in shaping the law and shaping history. And just the calendar part, too, is really striking here because, mm. as you've rightly pointed out, the clock now, if this case were to, to move on the timetable that we have, the absolute immunity case, you're potentially looking at a trial scheduled September of October. But there are guidelines at the Justice Department that say, and depending on who you ask, this is firm or not firm, but within 60 days of an election, the Justice Department is not supposed to be engaging in activities that could influence that election. Now, some people say the 60 days rule is not, is not hard and fast, that it's just discretionary, but don't do it too close to the election. And there are some interesting arguments, including from the group Protect Democracy, that this case, because it's indicted and because it's already proceeding, does not fall under those guidelines. But this is Merrick Garland we're talking about as attorney general. It's very easy to imagine him saying, we're not putting Trump on trial the first week of October, a month out from the election. But if that's the case, this thing goes into sometime it's into cooked. 2025. Yeah, it's cooked. Yeah, they Trump basically yeah. cooked it, right? Like it, yeah. it's, at this point, it would be surprising. It would yeah. be surprising if this case happens before the election. And indeed, obviously, if Trump wins, it will never happen at all. And so 
what they've done in essence is they've cooked the case. And I, I think maybe that's a good lead into, I, I don't want to step, I've just written a whole article about this. That's it's with the, the process. It's with the editors. So who knows what yes. happened to this? <laughs> I don't want to step on that because if it goes through, I'm sure I'd like to talk about it in a, in a week or two, but in essence, I'm making a case here that regular listeners to the show might remember the pollster Ian Smith, who is, who's been on a couple of times and who outlined something really surprising to me back in November, which is that he had done work that suggests very strongly that most voters pay an average of 10 minutes a week worth of attention to political news, right up until the, the very cusp of the election, 10 minutes per week. So I look at, and I make the case in my article that we should all look at political news through that lens. So do I freak out? Let's say the Robert Herr special counsel report says that Joe Biden has a crappy memory. No, I do not freak out about that because I guarantee you that most voters have heard nothing about that <laughs> and it's already baked in. They know that Joe Biden is old. They get it. So that doesn't bother me. The only thing that we have really good evidence will move the needle in this election is we have seen strong polling evidence that when Republican voters are exposed to a lot of information all at once about Donald Trump's crimes, they get really edgy and mm -hmm. his support drops substantially. That over the summer, last summer, when his trials when these indictments were most in the news, the media got it completely wrong. They said, oh, it's really strengthening Donald Trump. No, it wasn't. No, it didn't. Mm. No, it didn't. If you look at the polling, the proportion of Republicans who thought that he had done nothing wrong dropped by nine points. That's a big deal. And Republican support for Donald Trump dropped by six points. When we're talking about ultra thin margins in swing states that are going to decide this election, that is the whole ballgame. So what I've been seeing all along is, hey, folks, let's not wet the bed. Okay, <laughs> if you're worried about the potential for the end of America, for the end of American democracy, bear in mind that these trials are going to happen and voters are going to be exposed to a lot more information. Most of them, the majority of Republicans have not heard about any of these cases. Mm. The majority of Republicans. And when they do, they we have seen that their support for Trump is going to fall off. And if he's convicted, 52% of Republicans say they would not vote for Donald Trump if he were a felon. So there is a lot to play out here. So that's why I say to you, and I'm, I will make the case and tell me if you think I'm full of it, that this is the biggest deal of the election because the Supreme Court has just cooked this case. They've cooked the most consequential felony case against Donald Trump. And we see the Georgia case is in danger of getting indefinitely delayed, if not falling apart. We see that the Mar-a-Lago case is in the hands of Eileen Cannon, who seems fixing to push this thing out indefinitely because she is a, a Trump lackey. And we have the New York case where it's a fraud case, but we all agree that Bragg is on the thinnest of legal ice here. It's the weakest of the four. Yeah. It's the weakest. This is the case. This is the case that matters, that was going to move on a calendar, that was going to put it right in front of voter spaces at a time wh where they were going to be making decisions that could have really changed it. 
And I think the Supreme Court has taken the most consequential lever over the American electorate off the table completely. And they could have turned the election here. What do you think? Does this, I sound like Joe Pesci in My Cousin Vinny. Does this hold water? Oh, yeah. I, I was having the exact same train of thought this morning. I think that the court's decision to take this case yesterday, we might look back on this day years from now and say that is, was one of the most consequential days of the 2024 election and nothing actually really happened. The court just issued one of its cryptic uh, nomic statements saying we're going to take this case and here's the question. But yeah, I, I think that's absolutely the case. It, a year ago or six months ago, there were four cases that were proceeding at a fairly rapid pace. And some of them are, two of them are federal, two of them are state. People who fear that Trump would pardon himself could console themselves by saying there's this Georgia case that is pretty comprehensive and is getting plea deals and is accumulating evidence and turning state's witness. The New York case is moving along. It is what it is. Not the strongest case, but it's moving. Yeah. And now you're looking at the possibility of maybe only one of these cases going to trial this year and it being the weakest of the four. And if you are the Trump campaign or you're his supporters, you have to be thrilled. And the sort of delaying tactics, the attempts to kick up dust in Georgia, if those prove successful as they seem to be, they seem to have found some real dust to kick up to keep that terrible metaphor going. Yeah, this has really worked out broke for them in a way that I don't think people saw coming. And it could change the direction of the presidential. Yeah, that's really the take up. Fonnie Willis, oh my gosh, I, I don't know about you. When I was dating my wife, I definitely took her on expensive vacations and out to dinner and paid in $3,000 worth of cash, which she then <laughs> paid back to me. So that seems normal. Definitely thanks. checks out. Yeah, th th thanks thanks for that, Fonnie. Yeah, I think you nailed the, the key point here. It seems like the headline here, once again, the headline doesn't tell the story. Thanks, New York Times. Mm -hmm. The headline here is, oh, they've agreed to hear this. They've decided. They've issued a decision. People should make no mistake. They have decided that this case will not be something that the American people get to put into their calculus. And they have given a massive gift to Donald Trump. I, I cannot undersell how important this is. This is the biggest kind of decision point for Republican voters. This is Joe Biden's best argument. It's the key because we all have massive recency bias. We, none of us can remember what happened two weeks ago. I don't remember what I had for dinner last night. The most <laughs> famous political campaign possibly in American history was Ronald Reagan's Morning in America ad. Don't you feel great about how Ronald Reagan turned around the economy? Did you know that unemployment was higher and inflation was higher when he was running those ads than when he was running against Jimmy Carter in 1980? It was all bullshit. It was bullshit. Very but effective we, bullshit. And why was it effective? <laughs> it's because people can't remember these things. What they were remembering, what they were comparing to was the economic atmosphere of 1982. And mm -hmm. they were like, oh, things have gotten better. When he asked Walter Mondale, are you better off than you were four years ago? The answer was no. But what people <laughs> were remembering 
was yeah. 1982. And they're thinking, I am feeling better. And the key to for Joe Biden was to remind people, hey, do you remember how shitty things were in 2020 and how this guy led an insurrection and was a massive criminal and how much he blew up America? And don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to that alternative. And the central argument in all of that is now off the tables. To me, make no mistake, the Supreme Court has decided. They have decided that we don't get to go through that process and American voters don't get to say, it's typical Trump gaslighting that their argument is, well, the voters should get to make a decision before we hear this case. What? That's backwards. They should, they should get to weigh is yeah. he a massive criminal? Is he a felon before they make that decision? And now they won't get to. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. It's also like the final and most essential piece of accountability for January 6th, which was the one of the, or if not the only, depending on which historian you ask, attempt to subvert the peaceful transfer of power in our history, which obviously is the one of the fundamental pieces of a functioning democracy. In this case, for all of the sort of headlines about it and the sort of partisan back and forth and the memes and whatever, this case was going to be the airing out of that question. Did the former president try to disrupt the most time-honored tradition in our country's history? Did he commit crimes by doing that? And if so, what is the accountability for that? Because there has to be accountability for that. And the fact that the court, the Supreme Court, agreeing to hear this case might put that off indefinitely, it, it does a real disservice to the American people who deserve some accountability for that, those actions by the president and for that particularly dark period in our history. And I, I don't even, like, I don't know if, say, Trump were to win, would the trial happen between November and January 20th? Because obviously January 20th is the real day here in terms of the transfer of power. Could they put him on trial in between? And if so, like what does it even matter at that point? It does and it doesn't. It's we Again, we're truly in a, a place that we have never found ourselves in before. And the court has just made it more complicated because it feels it has something to say on this. What that is... I, I, I don't know. One can only imagine. And you're, again, one of the best people to imagine these kinds of things. Let's just close on teasing out where things may go here. I see two potential long, it's really two plus one. My wife and I have a joke when we say, I have two things I want to say, and then we think of a third. It's two plus one, actually. <laughs> so maybe it's three things. And I'll give you the most important one first. Obviously, it, it's what I just said. The most important implication is if you've removed Joe Biden's most important argument, the, the, the core of his argument, it weakens him tremendously. And so everyone who thinks that American democracy is under threat, that the republic, the continued existence of the republic is under threat, I, I hate to say it, I, I, I don't like to say this out loud, but things just got a lot worse. Yesterday, things got a lot worse. That's the biggest implication. But I see two others. And you're really good about seeing around these corners. I want to see what you make of this and what else you see at this like early hour. One is sometimes when people get 
a prostate cancer diagnosis at age 80. Their doctor will say, look, this is not something you die of. This is something you die with because it's just the trajectory of this is going to be so long that don't worry about it. You'll die with this. Donald Trump now is very likely to die with indictments hanging over him, not of them. I prospect that his natural life will be shorter than the lifespan of these cases is now much, much higher. <laughs> and the other one is something that we touched on in your last appearance here on the show when you were talking about the 14th Amendment case and the potential bad outcomes from that. And it's really the nightmare scenario because now we're in a position where we could very easily have Donald Trump win this election and Democrats win the House. And we could be right back in another January 6th where Democratic members of the House are faced with an impossible choice. If you certify this election, then you are essentially writing the death warrant for America. If you truly believe, as I do, that Donald Trump means what he says about his authoritarian project, you are going to go ahead and say, okay, sign us up. We're on board. We're letting this go through. On the other hand, if they don't, then that's, then that is by definition, they've become what they beheld and they will have ended American democracy. They will have said, Hey, voters, what you thought there was really cute, but we're not going to go along with it. And they will have become what we've spent years excoriating 138 Republican House members for doing, which is overturning the results of a Democratic election in America. It is a nightmare that is a lot more likely today than it was yesterday. That's what I see. What, what do you see when you look around the corners or what do you make of that? Yeah, the prospect of that just increased dramatically because we are now facing the situation, right, where if Trump wins in November, he has these criminal indictments hanging over his head, but unresolved. It could be that the election subversion case is unresolved and in limbo because the Justice Department was never able to bring it to trial. They're not going to probably bring it to trial in the lame duck period when he's president-elect. Also seems like just completely uncharted territory. I don't even know what the, the DOJ would do there. Ditto the Mar-a-Lago case. Who knows what's happened in the Georgia case, but if somehow the Georgia case were to go to trial and it were somehow to lead to a conviction, would Democrats then say well, there's a conviction in Georgia on the grounds of that we're going to refuse to certify? Yeah, is a, what do they call it? A long night of the soul moment, long dark night of the soul, right. something like what that. What Douglas Adams called the long dark tea time of the soul. The long dark um, tea time of the soul, you know, yeah. Exactly. They would have to choose. They would really be faced with a, a, a question of, do you think that democracy could survive not certifying a president who won the Electoral College vote in November because you think what he's going to go on to do is going to lead the country down that path? Or do you certify him knowing that this that democracy is larger than even an X now incoming president facing criminal convictions, including for allegedly attempting to subvert democracy, but you have to at least hold firm to democracy itself. And he takes office and then you deal with him that way. I wish I could say that I felt 
confident that it was a no-brainer how a potential House majority held by the Democrats would decide there. But I don't know that I do. The left is not immune to the the passions of partisanship and, and some of the extremism that the right has experienced as well and you know in a huge way. So I your I hope those positions. conversations are happening. Yeah, given your former positions for Rolling Stone and Mother Jones, I'm gonna take you at your word on that. You, <laughs> the left, baby. I yeah, look, I do have there are some tea leaves about what would happen in that scenario. Some of the more thoughtful Democratic members of Congress expressed opinions about this and they've said, look, we'd certify. We yeah. we would just certify. And then your whole strategy becomes how do we run out the clock? How do we kneel on the football and just it would be like Winston Churchill. We're going to fight them in the courts. We're going to fight them in the hmm. states. We're going to fight them in the Congress. We're going to we're going to do every last thing to make sure that he can't follow through. And there would be battles galore over his schedule F, try and right. replace 50,000 people in the federal government with his MAGA cronies and his plans for the military and, and, and his continue. And we would just I, I think they've looked around that corner and they've said, no, we would have to do it. But it's just, I agree with you though. That's what they're saying now, but it's just all of the prospects for how this could go badly have just, their probability levels have shot up and uh, it's really disquieting. And boy, do I hate to end an episode on this. Do you have anything good to say here, Andy, <laughs> before we get out? Oh, I mean, I think that to your point about how much is anyone paying attention to this stuff? I think that even if these cases are delayed, during the year and they face setbacks. I still think that they are, if there's only 10 minutes or 20 minutes a week, let's be even a little more generous here. I still think that the presence of these indictments is very much a part of the election year conversation. And I think that the voters I've talked to who are not overwhelmingly one side or the other are still aware of this and still understand that there are much bigger stakes in this election that go point back to 2020 and former President Trump's role there and point forward to what he would do if he were elected. So I think that voters have a even a sort of fuzzy, unformed, but still a understanding, an understanding of just how much is at stake in this election, even if they're not paying attention to every twist and turn. That's what I found go traveling around for some reporting, most recently even in Michigan, my home state, talking to folks there. I don't think that the court's decisions, the delays, the drama in Georgia means that voters will lose sight of these issues going into this year and that in, in this year's election and that they will shape their voting behavior, certainly shape their impressions of the two candidates. That As someone who writes about these things for a living, that heartens me a little bit and is useful to know and helpful to know that people understand what's going on here, even if it's not full speed ahead on the actual legal front. That's great. You could have just been spinning me like a pro and, and just trying to buck me up a little bit, but I'm going to take it. I'm not going to no, step that's, on it. That's the straight reporting, man, from the yeah, ground. Yeah, that's as good, that's as good a, a take as we're going to get on this. All right, Andy Kroll, thanks so much for jumping on this. And uh, as Donald Trump says, we'll see what happens. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me.